Thank you, Brian, for coming over. We played in the orchestra at Southern together many years ago. Um, it's been too long, I think, but it's nice to have you here with us. Bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful week that you've given us and this special day that we can come together and open up your word. And I pray that your spirit would be with us now. And I pray that your spirit would speak through me, hide me behind the cross, and may the words I speak be not my own, but the words that you would have me to say. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title for today's sermon, as you can see in the bulletin, is The Candlestick, The Prophet, and The Fall of Babylon. And this sermon is based on Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. Now, what is Daniel chapter 5 about? I think we know the story. You have Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall, and at the end of the chapter, Belshazzar is slain by Darius the Median. But if you wanted to summarize in one term what Daniel chapter 5 is about, you could probably entitle this chapter, The Fall of Babylon. Daniel chapter 5 is the fall of ancient Babylon. Now, we know that in the book of Revelation, there's the talk of another Babylon that has fallen. So it could be possible that what we will see in Daniel, Daniel chapter 5 is very relevant to the book of Revelation. So that's what we're going to look at today. So I'm going to start in... Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. So what do we have here? We have a great feast that Belshazzar is throwing. It's a big party, if you will. And the people that are at this feast or at this party happen to be the lords of the kingdom of Babylon, which gives you the idea that this is a very political event. This is the political thing that's happening in town. If you're anyone of political significance, you would want to be at this party because Belshazzar the king is throwing the party, and you don't want to be left out. It'd be like President Bush holding a state dinner, and boy, if you're one of the leading politicians in town, you'd sure like to be there. And so here you have a political event taking place. Now notice what they're doing at this political event. They're drinking wine. Now... Interestingly enough, it might be fair to say that they were drinking the wine of Babylon, since that's where they were. And um, I don't think I have to tell you that when you drink wine, I've never drank wine, by the way. And I hope, if you haven't, that you won't start. If you have, by God's grace, you can live a better life, amen? But I don't have to tell you that if you drink wine, it clouds your thinking. 
I'm a neurologist, so I can tell you the pathophysiology if you want me to, but I won't. But it clouds your thinking. And when it clouds your thinking, it causes you to do things that you maybe wouldn't do under normal circumstances. You lose your inhibitions, and without even realizing it, you've gotten yourself perhaps into a lot of trouble. This has happened over and over again in the history of this earth. People think, well, I'm different than anyone else. When I drink, I'll be okay. Well, Belshazzar and these lords are no different than anyone else who drinks wine. Their senses were clouded. Another way to look at it is that they probably came under delusion as to their true condition. Because what was really happening outside of the city was that they were being surrounded by the, the army of the Medes and Persians. So while they thought that they were safe inside the city, a storm was brewing outside, and they didn't even know it. So notice what happens after they drink this wine, which I like to call the wine of Babylon. They, Belshazzar loses his inhibitions, and he says, Hey, why don't we get those golden and silver vessels that my grandfather Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple of Jerusalem? Now, Belshazzar probably was a very good student of history, knowing what had happened to Jerusalem, how it had been taken captive, how they had brought the Jewish captives to Babylon, but he also knew that the God of the Jews was really all-powerful. He had seen that none of the wise men of Babylon could interpret or even tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was in chapter 2. He had seen Daniel properly predict Nebuchadnezzar's future after Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 4. And yet, once he started drinking that wine, he basically said in defiance to God, you know what, I'm going to mix my wine with your holy vessels to show you who really is king of Babylon. Now, when that happened, notice what happened next. In verse 4, it says, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. So Nebuchadnezzar came to an understanding of who the true God was, but Belshazzar, he says, you know what, I know my grandfather thought that the God of heaven is the all-powerful God, but I'm going to show the God of heaven who the king of Babylon is. So he mixes the wine of Babylon with these holy vessels. They drink the wine, and then they start worshiping false gods. The gods of gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, and stone. Now, interestingly enough, four of these elements are the same elements in the image in Jan Daniel chapter 2. And a, an application you could say is that they were worshiping the gods of the kingdom of this world. Refusing to acknowledge that God is God and that he is the one who sets up kings and takes them down. And that was the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. 
And that's the reason why he was turned into an animal for seven years. If you read the end of chapter 4, he finally comes to the understanding that it's God who sets up kings and takes them down. But here Belshazzar is saying, I'm the king of Babylon, and I'm going to defy the God of heaven. I'm going to pour my wine into the holy vessels of God. Now notice what happens next. Verse 5. And you almost wish that there was a videotape of this scene. But I think we can still create some great word pictures in our minds of what happened next. In verse 5, it says, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. If you've ever wondered where that phrase, the handwritings on the wall, comes from, it's from this story. Um, we've probably all used that phrase at some point in our life when we know that something's about to crash and burn. It's like, yep, the handwriting's on the wall. You know if the handwriting's on the wall, that's a bad sign. Now, why was the handwriting on the wall? Why did fingers of a man's hand come over and write against the wall and the candlestick shines light on this writing? Well, if you look a little bit more carefully at the first four verses, Belshazzar brings his political lords to this feast. They start drinking wine. And then it turns into some kind of a weird religious service. They start worshiping false gods. So here you have the political leaders of Babylon in a religious worship service, drinking wine. So what you have here at the beginning of Daniel chapter 5 is you have a false, unholy union between that which is holy and that which is profane. You have the wine of Babylon mixed with the holy vessels. And when the people drink the wine, they start worshiping false gods. Now, these are the political leaders. So you have a union of church and state under false pretenses of false worship. Because Babylon should have known that the God of heaven is the true God. But instead, they chose to worship a false god, which they were more easily led to worship when they drank their wine of Babylon. And so then in verse 5, you have the fingers of a man's hand that write against the pla upon the plaster of the wall, and you have a candlestick that shines light upon this message that's being written on the wall. Very interesting. Now, let me point out a few places of what fingers of a man hand could possibly represent in the Bible. Now, if you look at Daniel chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, it's clear. Daniel tells Belshazzar, this hand was sent forth from God. So God sends, for, sends this hand to write this message on the wall. But if you look in Scripture, there's a few places where we have the hand of God, the fingers of God, so to speak, writing a message. One place is the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God in tables of stone. That's one place. Another place, you have the woman caught in adultery 
Jesus stoops down and writes with his finger in the dust and writes all the sins of the leaders that were accusing this woman. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But in essence, he was judging those leaders who were condemning this woman that was caught in adultery. And one other place that I'll point out, there's probably others, is Exodus 8.19. And in Exodus 8.19, you have the plague of lice being poured out upon the Egyptians. Now, what were the plagues? The plagues were judgments of God upon Egypt for not letting his people go. So you have the plagues of Egypt being associated with the judgments of God. And up until that time, the magicians of Egypt had been able to copy some of these plagues. But when the lice came, they were not able to copy that plague. And so in, in Exodus 8:19, they said, truly, this is the finger of God. So if, if you put those different examples together in Scripture, the finger of God is associated with judgment. So what you have here, you have in Babylon, in ancient Babylon, as we are studying in Daniel chapter 5, this fall of Babylon and the sequence of events that led to its fall, you have Belshazzar calling a political event, drinking wine, using the wine in holy vessels, and then he um, worships false gods. And that combination led to the handwriting on the wall, which surely is connected with judgment. And obviously in verse 6, Belshazzar is very troubled as well he should be. And then verses 7 and 8, Belshazzar decides to call the wise men of Babylon to try to help him understand what this handwriting on the wall is. Now notice what happens in Daniel chapter 5. In verse 8, it says, Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing, nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Now, I have to ask myself, why would Belshazzar call the wise men of Babylon in again? Let's just review a little bit of history. Daniel chapter 1, the wise men of Babylon are one-tenth as smart as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why would you bring in a group of men that are 10% as smart as other people in your kingdom? Daniel chapter 2, the wise men of Babylon, they can't even tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is, let alone give him the interpretation, but Daniel can. But of course, Daniel's ignored. The wise men of Babylon are called in first. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar even tells his wise men what the dream is, and they can't tell him what the interpretation is. But Daniel can. So then history repeats itself. Daniel chapter 5, there's the handwriting on the wall, and guess who Belshazzar calls? Not Daniel, but the wise men who are 10% as smart as Daniel. They've never been able to interpret any of the dreams that we've seen in the book of Daniel thus far, but they're here again to prove that they don't really know much. And sure enough, they could not make known the interpretation of the handwriting on the wall, even though it was clearly there on the wall. They could see it with their own eyes. So why do you think that is? Every time that 
the wise men of Babylon could not interpret the message from God. It gave glory to God's true wise men, and God was glorified in that way. And, of course, we know the story. The queen mother then says, hey, you need to call in Daniel. And in verse 11, she says, "He's in him is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in whom the king of Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king, I say thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, and so forth. So Daniel is called in to interpret the handwriting on the wall. Now we know, of course, that he was able to do so. But notice what what Daniel does. He is told that if he is able to make the interpretation, that he will be clothed with scarlet, have a chain of gold about his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And in verse 17, Daniel says, let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will make the writing unto the king, and make known to him the interpretation. So Daniel wasn't interested in any worldly honor or wealth or power. He just was there to do what God told him to do. And then he gives Belshazzar a little history lesson. He says, Belshazzar, do you remember your, your father, Nebuchadnezzar? Don't you remember what happened to him? He became an animal for seven years because God humbled him. And yet, here you are doing the very same thing. And you should have known better. Nebuchadnezzar perhaps didn't know any better, and so God gave him the appropriate chances. But Belshazzar, you knew all this, and yet you have not humbled your heart. Now, what does that say about us? There's a lot of things we know in the Bible. And do we live our lives by the principles of the Word of God? when we know what the Word of God says, or do we make excuses? Now notice the things that Daniel mentions that are essentially leading to the fall of Babylon. Daniel says in verse 23, number one, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Two, you have used holy vessels that are really intended only for holy, holy use. You've worshipped false gods, and you have not glorified God. So Belshazzar, when he decided to drink the wine of Babylon in the, the holy vessels of God and worshipped false gods, he was lifting himself up against the God of heaven. And that's the spirit of Babylon. That is why Babylon fell. Babylon fell because it lifted itself up against the God of heaven. And if you study about the end time Babylon, the very same characteristic is true. It speaks great words against the Most High, wears out the saints of the Most High, and so forth. We'll get back to that. Babylon received the judgment of God because it lifted itself up against God. Now, I want to show you some interesting things now that, to me, I find quite interesting. Starting in verse 25, 
Daniel now reads the handwriting on the wall and gives the interpretation of this handwriting. Starting in verse 25. And this is the writing that was written, Mini, Mini, Tikal, Eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mini, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Paris, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now let's look at these components very carefully. The first part, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Now realize this is God's judgment being pronounced on Babylon as it has reached its fallen state. So the first part of the judgment is God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. This gives us the idea when it says God has numbered your kingdom that God has been looking at the kingdom of Babylon He's gone through a process of determination, numbering, or investigation to come to a conclusion about the kingdom of Babylon. So the first part of this judgment that's being pronounced on Babylon is that God investigated your kingdom. And the second part then is God Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. That's the verdict. So the first part, God invested your kingdom. The verdict, you're weighed in the balances and found wanting. And then the last part of the judgment is your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that's the sentence of the judgment. So you have three parts of this judgment. The first part, God invested your king, investigated your kingdom. The second part is your kingdom is weighed in the balances and found wanting. And the third part is, is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So you have a process of investigation, you have the, the verdict, and you have the sentence. Three parts of judgment to the fall of Babylon. And of course, the last part was a fulfillment of prophecy from Daniel chapter 2, that the head of gold will be followed by an inferior kingdom. So there you see a fulfillment of prophecy. Let's make some end-time applications now in the remaining time that we have. Daniel chapter 5 is written in the Bible for a, for a reason. It's there to help us understand what it will be like when Babylon falls again at the end of the world. You have a king who should know who the true God is, but he decides to worship the way he wants to. He'll drink his wine. He'll worship the gods of gold, silver, brass, iron, and wood, and stone. And he'll do so in a religious and political context. And I want to read Revelation chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. Starting partway into the verse. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine 
of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Do you see the same components as in Daniel chapter 5? The kings of the earth drinking wine with Babylon, the merchants of the earth with their gods of gold, silver, stone, brass, iron, and wood. All of those things are part of the fall of Babylon at the end of time. Babylon is a union of a, and if you go to Revelation 17, it's a woman, and that woman makes the kings of the earth drink her wine. And so because of that, they worship false gods, and this leads to her fall. And if you read Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says that God will send them strong delusion that they might believe a lie. And of course, that strong delusion comes from them drinking the wine of Babylon. They become deluded. They aren't able to discern the difference between truth and error. Now, I'm going to read a quote from Review and Herald, page September 12, 1893. And this tells us clearly who Babylon is. The fallen denominational churches are Babylon. There you have it. The fallen denominational churches. Now, sometimes I wonder why we go to other churches to figure out how to get church growth and improve our worship services when they're the fallen churches of Babylon. That makes no sense to me. We are the light of the world that God has entrusted with a message. Now let me read on. Babylon has been fostering poisonous doctrines, the wine of error. So wine, the wine of Babylon, is error. And she lists some wine right here. This wine of error is made up of false doctrines, such as the natural immortality of the soul, the eternal torment of the wicked, the denial of the pre-existence of Christ prior to his birth in Bethlehem, and advocating and exalting the first day of the week above God's holy sanctified day. These and kindred errors are presented to the world by the various churches, and thus the scriptures are fulfilled that say, for all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, if you read in Great Controversy, she also says that it cannot be said yet that all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That comes at the very end of time. But what I want to point out is that this message of the fall of Babylon is a crucial part of God's end-time message. And we, as his end-time people, have a crucial part to play in that. Remember in Daniel chapter 5, when the handwriting came on the wall, what was it that shone light on that three-part judgment message of the fall of Babylon? It happened to be a candlestick. If you look at Daniel chapter 5, it says, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall. So it was the candlestick that gave light to the three-part judgment hour message. Now, at the end of time, in Revelation chapter 14, there's a three-part judgment hour message that goes to the whole world. The second angel's message is, of course, Babylon, the greatest fallen, has fallen because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 
And those three messages are to, pre are to be proclaimed during the judgment hour. The first message is fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. Just as there was a judgment on Babylon in Daniel chapter 5, there's also a judgment on Babylon at the end of the world. And the candlestick gives light to that three-part judgment hour message. What is the candlestick? The candlestick is the church, but which church? There's seven candlesticks in Revelation. Well, the seventh candlestick is the candlestick of Laodicea. And what does Laodicea mean? A judged people. So a judged people are a church that shines light on a three-part judgment hour message. Just as a candlestick gave light to the three-part judgment hour message in the past. Now, even though there was a candlestick that shone light on that three-part judgment hour message, the wise men of Babylon could not interpret the writing. And the same is true today. The fallen churches of Babylon, they don't have the slightest clue about the three angels' messages. That's why we were raised by God to give that message. That's our role in, in Earth's history. We are God's people to give that message because the wise men of Babylon cannot interpret the dream. They cannot interpret the writing. Now, in the book of Daniel, interestingly enough, in Daniel chapter 12, there's a prophecy that points to the time of the end. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, it says, the wise shall understand. Now, Daniel was the wise man in Daniel chapter 5 who was ten times smarter than the wise men of Babylon, so clearly he's very wise. He understood the three-part judgment message. And in Daniel chapter 12, it says, the wise shall understand something because there's something that's sealed till the time of the end. And obviously, just running quickly down the, the list of descriptions, in Revelation 10, this sealed book is opened. That book is opened for the understanding of the Second Advent Movement. Now, what specifically was opened for the understanding of the Second Advent Movement? Well, we know that this book was sealed till the time of the end, which was 1798. And in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verse 17, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel, understand that the vision is for the time of the end. Well, what vision was that? It was the vision of the 2300 days. So those who are wise at the time of the end will understand the 2300-day prophecy written by the prophet Daniel. And the reason why they will understand the 2300-day prophecy is because the 2300-day prophecy is the specific prophecy that points to the three angels' messages that say, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. So you have the three messages of Revelation that point to the fall of Babylon, the judgment of Babylon at the end of time, just as you have the three-part judgment interpreted by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 5. So those who are wise and understand the 2300-day prophecy are God's people at the end of time. So if you go to a church that says, you know, who cares what happened on October 22, 1844, we don't even know, um, we think Jesus went to the 
most holy place as soon as he ascended from heaven. That's the wine of Babylon. It's, it's false because God's people at the end of time will understand the 2300-day prophecy and they will share that message to the world. Now, let me just point out one other thing. <clears throat> it's true that those who are wise at the end of time will understand the 2300-day prophecy and point to this three-part judgment hour message to the world. And it's true that those people are the Second Advent movement, which is our church, the Seventh-day Adventist church. But notice in Daniel chapter 5 that it was especially Daniel who was able to interpret the writings, the writing on the wall. Now, who was Daniel? Daniel was, of course, the wise man, the Hebrew captive, but he was also God's true prophet. Daniel was God's true prophet. So let me ask you this. If God sent a true prophet to interpret a three-part judgment hour message to Babylon as it fell the first time, don't you think he will send a true prophet to interpret that three-part judgment hour message at the end of time? And so I have no apologies in saying that God sent Ellen White to the remnant church to give us an understanding of this three-part judgment hour message. And let me just read you a quote from Great Controversy, page 486, from Ellen White. At the time appointed for the judgment, the close of the 2300 days in 1844 began the work of investigation and the blotting out of sins. All who have ever taken upon themselves the name of Christ must pass its searching scrutiny. Both the living and the dead are to be judged, out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. God has given us an edge. Now, maybe there's some of you here today who aren't Adventists. Maybe you've never read Ellen White. If you haven't, come talk to me afterwards. I'll, I'll give you some books that you will very much enjoy reading. Um, one book that I would highly recommend is The Great Converse. And that book, of all others, was her most prized possession that she wrote. And we have an inside advantage, and I am not going to throw that advantage away to be politically correct, because God has given us her as a messenger to help us be prepared for the time in which we live in now. Once you start throwing her out, you're starting to get on very shaky ground. Look what happened when Belshazzar threw Daniel out. Daniel came back into the picture after it was too late for Belshazzar. I don't want that to happen to us. I'm going to close with a practical application. We've proved that the fall of Babylon was associated with the wine of Babylon and the union of church and state and worshiping false gods and so forth. And we didn't even really get to go into as much detail as I would have liked about the union of church and state with Sunday worship and all of that at the end of time. But what about us who know all these things? We know that we're living in the judgment hour. Do we live like we're living in the judgment hour? Is Jesus our best friend? Do we love Jesus with all our hearts so that we're spending more time with him than we do with the television and the internet and things of that nature?
Jesus is everything to us. And he switched apartments on October 22, 1844, as our great high priest, and he still lives to make intercession for us today. That's what he is doing right now. And we are living in such a time that we know enough to know how God wants us to be living during this judgment hour time. It's so easy to fall into the trap. Well, you know, I'll just do it this time and God will forgive me and then I'll make things right uh, later. But God has a higher standard that he wants for us to live in the judgment hour. And I'm going to read a quote that's based on Daniel chapter 5, verse 27, and it's found in the writings of Ellen White, Great Controversy, page 491. Watch ye therefore, lest suddenly he find you sleeping. Perilous is the condition of those who, growing weary of their watch, turn to the attractions of the world. While the man of business is absorbed in the pursuit of gain, while the pleasure lover is seeking indulgence, while the daughter of fashion is arranging her adornments, it may be in that hour the judge of all the earth will pronounce the sentence, Thou art weighed in the balances, and art found wanting. The message of Daniel chapter 5 is just as true for us today as it was for, the, for Belshazzar of that time. And it's, you know, here in Southern California, it's so easy to get caught into those traps. The businessman pursuit, or absorbed in the pursuit of gain. It's so easy to be thinking about getting an education so that we can make a lot of money and have the nicest house in Mama London. That's not judgment hour level. It's so easy to get absorbed in the pleasures that are so pervasive around us. I don't even, I'm not even going to name them. I'll let the Holy Spirit speak to whichever one it is that you're struggling with. Um, and the fashions of this world, we live right near Hollywood. That's not the fashions of heaven, I'll tell you that. And all of those things Satan throws at us to try to get us to be unprepared for the judgment hour. And, you know, the judgment hour message has come under criticism, even in our church in the last few years. People are like, oh, I've always been afraid of living in the judgment. and I'm so thankful for a new message that makes me not worry about the judgment anymore. Well, the Bible is clear. We will face the judgment. Whether we like it or not, whether you believe in a theology that minimizes the judgment, there will be a judgment. And as I said before, thankfully, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who ever lives to make intercession for us. And he's in heaven right now, interceding for each one of you today, pleading on your behalf to his heavenly Father, who is all-loving and all-merciful, saying, my grace is sufficient, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And he offers that power to each one of us today, so that we can live like Jesus in the judgment. And there will come a day, I believe very soon, when Revelation 18.1 will reach its fulfillment, which says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with its glory. And what's the message that follows? Babylon is falling. 
what it, who is it that lightens the earth with its glory? It's God's people who are the candlestick on this earth. And that will happen when God has a people who can stand in the judgment and Jesus can say, these people are just like me, let's take them home. So my prayer for Advent Hope today is that we will realize that we have a judgment hour message for the world, that we will not be ashamed of it, that we will not be ashamed of the special gifts that God has given to us at church. He has given He has made us the candlestick to the world. He's given us a prophet. And with that combination, he tells us to go out and to share this message with the world. So may we be faithful to the challenge that God gives to us as we live in the judgment hour. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being Seventh-day Adventists, but we know that with this privilege comes great responsibility. We ask for forgiveness for where we have failed so many times. We pray that we would lift up this message through your power, that we would point people to Jesus, who is our advocate, who ever lives to make intercession for us so that we can stand on that judgment day. Help us to be faithful, and I pray if there's any person here today that has been convicted by this message and is maybe struggling with some of the elements that they heard, that you would work on their hearts and help them to see that, that you can help them with every need in life, including the sins that so easily beset us. So help us to be like Jesus, and we thank you for your love to us. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.